I learned a lot from my teachers. Mm. I learned more from my colleagues. I learned the most from my students. Mm. And if I was going to summarize the 34 years here at the Darden School, it would be all the things that I've learned, all the ways I've grown from you and your classmates and the alums that I've had the opportunity to teach. This is Harsha. And this is Eric. And welcome to episode three of Third Coffee. Yes, a very, a very belated welcome, but we have to admit spring break got the best of us. Yes, yes, you can still fun, have fun at Darden um, on spring break during a pandemic. No problem. All right, we're back with episode three. We've had two wonderful guests in Yael and Elena. Do check out those episodes if you haven't done so already. But we've got a fantastic guest lined up for our third episode. Eric, why don't you tell us a little bit about who we have? Sure, we have Elliot Weiss. Uh, we affectionately called him the godfather of ops <laughs> That's right. uh, on this episode. And we probably could have used some of his advice in getting this episode out on time. Uh, but without further ado, we're actually going to let the godfather uh, introduce himself here. Uh, take it away. Let's go. Thanks, Harsha. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for inviting me today. I'm looking forward to this uh, time together. I've been at the uh, Darden School since 1987, so this is my 34th year here, and uh, it's also my last year. I'll be retiring in June, and it's been a, a wonderful journey. I call it a long, strange trip. Before being here at Darden, I was at uh, the Johnson School at Cornell for seven years. I taught there, and then undergrad and graduate, MBA, PhD, I did all at Wharton at University of Pennsylvania. And I grew up in the city of Philadelphia, so the first time I ever left Philly, was actually to go to Cornell to teach. Here at Darden, I teach obviously in our core course in operations, and I've taught electives in manufacturing, planning, and control, recently service operations, and then uh, my love and my specialty now, uh, the course called General Management and Operations Effectiveness, but what I do is teach about lean and uh, the Toyota production system. Nice. Yeah, it's funny, Elliot. We were talking about it this morning with all your years of experience uh, we considered you like the the godfather of the ops program, or at least that's what it looked like from our perspective over there in the Section D classroom from afar. Well, thanks for calling me the godfather instead of the old fart in Section E. <laughs> you did mention on the letter that you wrote to, I believe, all Darden faculty um, that you often thought you'd like to be the senior statesman here at Darden. So we kind of modified that and we thought, Godfather would be more appropriate, to be honest. So that's why we used it. <laughs> in, in any case, Elliot, moving on uh, to the first question that we always start this podcast with, and that is, what is your favorite coffee story? My favorite coffee story? Well, I actually met my wife with coffee in a way. <laughs> I was a PhD student at Wharton. She was an MBA student at Wharton. And uh, C. Everett Coop, who was the uh, Surgeon General at the time, was giving a talk. Uh, she had already been in the classroom where he was talking, and there were many people there. And I came in late, actually, and I was carrying my backpack and my coffee cup. And I went to sit down, and I spilled the coffee all over the place. Wow. And that was the first time she had ever seen me. And uh, luckily, she didn't run away. Uh, uh, what is it now? We got married in 1981. I guess we met in 79. Uh, luckily, she stayed with me, even though I was a klutz over that uh, over that cup of coffee. Wow. <laughs> so 79, 81. I'll do my consulting math here. <laughs> 40 years. Wow. God bless her for putting up with me for 40 years, because it's the same wife, wife for all 40 years. <laughs> wow. That's just... But, but wait, but wait. You got to realize what kind of person she is too. Mm -hmm. So I met her at Penn and then I went up to Cornell and she was in, so she's in Philly and I'm in Cornell and we would get together every now and then. And then she wrote me a letter and in the letter, she put a decision tree. Wow. So yeah. the decision tree had to do with, you know, whether she should move, what we should do. So she's planning out her life by using a decision tree. And I knew at that time that this was the woman for me. So I'm hearing, show up late for class, do remember to get that cup of coffee, even if you're late to class, and then maybe spill it and life will work itself out. Is that the words of wisdom we want to impart to our listeners? <laughs> there you go. That's right. 
I'm, I'm laughing for two reasons. Uh, first, I just think it's funny, <laughs> no offense, Elliot, that an ops professor was running late to a meeting. Um, and second, uh, Yaya also met her partner at a coffee shop. So we're, we're two for three on this podcast, which really makes me think we're on to something here. I know, totally. We're going to transition to the next main segment we have, Elliot, and that is called High Caffeine. We're going to ask you some quick-hitting personal questions. And the first question in that vein is, what has changed most over 34, yes, 34 years, we looked it up, 34 years at Darden? The thing that's changed the most at Darden over the time I've been here have been the people. And by the people, I mean my faculty colleagues, and I mean the students. Uh, so faculty colleagues, I'll start with them. When, when I got here, we were a bunch of old white guys, old Southern white guys. <laughs> and when I go to the faculty meetings now, I realize how much more interesting we are with uh, both gender, with both uh, racial makeup, uh, with both uh, country of or- origin. And it's just more interesting to have these people, people around that challenge you with new ideas. The other thing that's different is you guys, the students, uh, same type of thing. You're much more interesting than the people were in 1987. And now uh, I hope those alums don't don't listen to this and get upset about it. But uh, you're smarter than than they were. You have better experiences than they were. Well, Harsh and I will certainly take that compliment and, and hopefully we can live up to your expectation. Uh, but But outside of the classroom now, Tell us a story um, from your illustrious pickup basketball career, Elliot. So we were, we were in the playoffs once, and this is the, the dogs. The, we called ourselves the dogs, the Darden old guys. Ed Freeman uh, actually would come out and coach us some days. He'd wear a jacket. We're playing these undergrads, and there's this guy there who's uh, dunking, reverse dunking over his head on their team, and they're looking at us and laughing at us. <laughs> and uh, we whooped their asses. You know, excuse the expression. <laughs> and by halftime, the guy who was dunking had fouled out wow. trying to guard me. So that, that, that's another highlight of my career. What did Coach Freeman have to say? Coach Freeman uh, finally realized that what an idiot he was to come out and <laughs> actually coach a bunch of faculty in a, in a game. And he, he, uh, he quit. <laughs> well, We'll veer away from the world of athletics uh, and we'll get slightly nerdy here. So what is your favorite story or best story regarding lean principles, these principles we talked about in your operations class? Growing up, I would always, uh, this, this is one of the curses of, uh, of seeing this lean stuff. I always see things that can be improved. Mm-hmm. And uh, wherever we are, so we're at a Subway sandwich shop and say, you know, they ought to be doing this or we're at an amusement park. You know, they should re- rearrange the line here. And my daughter, Anna, would always just roll her eyes. It's like, oh, dad, there you go again. There you go again. And she ended up uh, getting a master's in industrial engineering from the University of Michigan mm. in uh, process improvement. And <laughs> has taken jobs as a process improvement engineer and now as a, uh, as a coach. Uh, she's coaching docs, doctors in the area of process improvement. So, so the fact that growing up, she just thought, oh, I'll never do this. How can you do this? How can you think like this all the time? And, uh, and she turned into me. Funny you said that because I said that same thing about my parents when I was growing up. They both worked at banks and I was like, I don't want to work at a bank ever. The first job I get out of undergrad is at a bank. And I'm like, geez, I am my parents now. Ooh. Well, Mark Twain has a quote that says, you know, when he was a teenager, his father was the dumbest person on earth. But as he got older, his father got a lot smarter. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually a perfect segue because uh, we talk a lot about batch sizes in class. And you and your wife of Decision Tree fame, it sounds like, um, you have four children, which at least in my perspective is a, a very large batch. Um, so we have a lot of parents, a lot of expecting parents at Darden. Um, can you give our listeners any tips, any operations management principles you incorporated to manage this large batch size? Well, uh, what I like to say is each additional child 
is more incremental work, but the average work goes down. You have the setup cost of eight, the first child, and with four children, you spread that setup cost over our, all four children. So there, there's some sort of efficiency with the, with the fourth. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> only, only a business school professor would compare uh, raising a family to, to economies of scale, but I, I think we're tracking over here. Um, th- this next one, Elliot, I won't lie. Uh, I set you I set you up on this one from our, our prior conversation. But what is more important, an undergraduate degree or watching your favorite hockey team? Yep. Uh, well, you know, I have to say an undergraduate degree, but empirically that didn't happen. Uh, as I told you, when I was a senior undergrad, the Flyers were in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And my friends and I, uh, and this is May, uh, rather than uh, submit all my work that I needed to submit, uh, we drove up to uh, Long Island to see the Flyers play the Islanders. And we went up to Madison Square Garden to see the Flyers play the Rangers. So I got an incomplete in the math course because I didn't finish the simulation. And so I never got my undergrad degree because I was already in uh, my MBA program. (laughs) Then in second year of the MBA program, they said I couldn't graduate unless I finished that undergraduate course. They wouldn't give me the MBA because I didn't have the requirements. So I finished that. But uh, I was growing up, I was always told uh, education is the most important thing. You don't complete with your body, you complete with your brains. But obviously, I didn't follow that uh, that here. I wonder who else will listen to this podcast and realize that they need to complete that one course in undergrad before they graduate. <laughs> We should get this podcast on soon. Graduation is coming up fast. <laughs> well, hopefully, it's, uh, there may be some uh, some of your classmates who need to finish that one class in <laughs> yeah. MBA school. To... Exactly. Yes. All right. And before we go into this this deep dive on operations management and lean principles, put us in your shoes, Elliot, uh, of 20-something-year-old you. Why did you choose operations? What was your motivation? I chose operations not when I was 20-something, probably when I was 17 or 18-something. Wow. And the reason was I like to solve problems. I like to solve puzzles. And I view operations as being puzzle solving. How do you take this situation, this process, and uh, and do it better, and improve upon it, make it faster, uh, cheaper, mm. better? The other thing is I'm a lazy person. So lazy, yes, but I still want to get things done. So operations and lean to me is how can I do what I need to get done with as little work as possible? Nice. So I think, I think Bill Gates has a matrix. I attribute it to him. Uh, it's uh, smart, not smart, lazy, not lazy. And he says what he wants to hire is smart, lazy people because they're going to figure out the way to do things as quickly and as efficiently as, efficiently as possible. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's, let's look for those people who understand the task. Let's get it done and let's move on to the next one. Uh, one of the things we say in lean is don't let perfect get in the way of better. So mm-hmm. let's, let's so, so what, what I am, I think, is pragmatic. And I view operations as being very pragmatic, very efficient, how how I can do either uh, more with the same or even less. Great. Well, (laughs) I like the sound of this. It sounds like all you need to know is cheaper, faster, better. Uh, And if you're lazy, then this is definitely the the subject for you. Um, So with that said, uh, let's delve into some of these operations management principles and some of these lean principles that you keep alluding to. Awesome. We'll, we'll still keep this segment like free-flowing, conversational, although this is the part that you know will cover the majority of the book, um, basically. So, um, Elliot, in true sense of, you know, us sticking to coffee puns, this one's called the long pour because we're going to, you know, pour out a lot of coffee. I, I don't know why we came up with that name, but that's the name we came up we're gonna with. We're going to go in depth about yeah. this wonderful book. Yes. So, 
We're talking to you today about this book that you wrote um, with your co-author Rebecca Goldberg. It's called Lean Anthology: A Practical Primer in Continual Improvement. So, before we dive into the book and like talk through some of the examples, I loved how you said that you picked up operations because it was a series of puzzles. And now that I think about it, this book is essentially designed as a series of puzzles, which is pretty cool. Um, there's one thing right at the start where you define lean. and you call it the relentless pursuit of creating value by strategically eliminating waste and that's the definition i feel like wait wait i i need to interrupt you here uh-huh. because when you say that you have to stand up and put your hand over your heart because that's our pledge so in my classes uh-huh. at the beginning of each class we stand yeah. up and the, your classmates who took uh, general management operational effectiveness will will say this So let's let's practice read and repeat. So you repeat after me. Lean, lean. Uh, both of you, please lean. Lean is the relentless pursuit. Is the relentless pursuit of creating value. Of creating value through the strategic elimination. Through the strategic elimination of waste. Of waste. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. Yes. I don't think I'll ever forget that now. <laughs> But okay, there's already a story in there. And like when we read this, we felt that every single word that you used to define that was super important. Like it's so meta in the fact that lean is defined in the most lean way possible. Just tell us how you arrived at that definition. Yeah. And treat us like we just said the pledge of allegiance, yeah. but we know nothing about the subject. Yeah. Let's start at square one. I'm, I don't know if this goes in or not, but I'm laughing because obviously you you looked at my slides where I said every word is important. So lean is the relentless pursuit of creating value through the strategic elimination of waste, and I like to say every word is important. So lean is what we're talking about. Uh, relentless pursuit is important because what it says is don't let perfect get in the way of better. We don't have to we don't have to reach perfection, but we should strive for it. Uh, I like to say lean is the only race you lose by finishing. So we're going to keep going on and on and on and on. So one of the, one of the concepts of lean is a, something called kaizen, continuous improvement. So there's continuous improvement projects. And the idea here being we're going to work on a kaizen, come up with a solution, implement it. And it may not be perfect, but that's okay cuz 6 months from now or 9 months from now or a year from now We're going to look at the problem again and try to do better. Hmm. Uh, there's a statement from the Jewish Talmud. It goes something like this: "The task is hard. You won't be able to finish it, but that doesn't remove you from the obligation of trying." So there again, it's this relentless pursuit we're going to try. Lean is the relentless pursuit of creating value. Now, why was creating value important? Who defines value? Harsh Eric, do you, do you know who 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 do you think defines value? This is me cold calling you in your podcast. <laughs> oh man, well appreciate you keeping us on our toes here, Elliot, as second years. Uh, but I, I'll just say, chapter one of your book mentions the customer. Yeah, exactly, the customer. Mm-hmm. So I'm creating value for the customer. So lean is the relentless pursuit of creating value through the strategic. And now strategic is important because. I could eliminate eliminate waste that doesn't really matter that that's kind of rounding error. So my uh, my example for that is if you go into the Darden school into the classroom building and you go into each of the three or four different uh, men's restrooms there mm-hmm. you'll see that each paper towel dispenser is different. So why why don't we have the same paper towels in each one so that the the people who we hire can manage inventory better can mm. have some sort of standard work in replacing the towels uh, boy that would that would save some time and save some money but the question is is that strategic enough is that really important enough to worry about i think it's important enough to worry about but probably doesn't rise to the top of the next thing we should do so mm. lean is the relentless pursuit of creating value through the strategic elimination of waste. So the whole idea here is we want to eliminate waste. We want to get rid of the things that are non-value added for the customer. And you may remember we use the acronym Tim Wood for waste. Mm-hmm. The uh, Japanese word is muda, M U D A. Uh and so the seven categories of waste are transport, 
inventory motion, weighting, overproduction, overprocessing, and defects. And then we often add another one called uh, untapped creativity. So you mentioned creating value for the customer. And I think a key question we had was sometimes the customer is actually yourself. So how do I go about creating value for myself? Uh, at Darden, we learn a lot about implementing lean practices on a large factory floor scale, for example. But we love this book because it's about integrating these principles into our personal and professional lives at an individual level. Um, so how do you start doing that analysis? You just mentioned eliminating waste, for example. How can we find that in our personal lives? So, so some, some of these examples I'm going to give you are, these are, these are what get, get eye rolls <laughs> okay. all, all the time. So, so, so the whole idea is to, to look for where is their excess transport? Where is their excess inventory? Where is their excess motion? Mm-hmm. And part of what we're trying to do is create more time. So we, we had a different title for the book once and the subtitle was how to save and create time for the fun stuff. So mm. you want, you want to go play bad basketball. You want to be with your kids. You don't want to be folding laundry. You don't want to be spending time unnecessarily in, in the kitchen or shopping or, or uh, running out of groceries. So you go back and forth and back and forth all the time. So let's, let's figure out an inventory control system there. So, so for example, last night I was doing the wash and I have to fold the clothes and one, one of the things that uh, takes a lot of time is matching up socks, you know, trying to sort them, put them together, and then you lose them. So I look at that. I have only three types of socks. I have mm. white socks. I have dark socks that are all the same color. And then I have in the winter, I have these woolen socks. So I don't match anything. I just take all the white socks and put them together in a drawer all the dark socks, put them in the drawer and all the wool socks, put them in the drawer. And then when I take them out, I just grab the next two, two that are, that are there. So yeah, so some, some standard work there. Um, but, but look, I know you preface this by saying that some of those examples are eye rolly and, you know, some people may prize their crazy colored socks. Um, actually, in fact, I give harsher crap about that all the time because he wears two crazy colored socks on purpose every day in addition to his crazy hair, but that's, that's another topic. Um, but look, your book is a really good starting point um, for analyzing these small tweaks you can make if you step back, reflect, um, and analyze how you can eliminate some of these seven categories of waste in that Tim Wood acronym. Taken all together, a lot of these tweaks in your book can really start to make an impact on the amount of personal time you have. Now, now with that being said, I do want to press a little bit further, Elliot, because it's very clear to me that this way of thinking is completely ingrained in your head. But if you could, can you reverse engineer that process of how you analyze your life and eliminate this waste? Or what principles do you keep top of mind when you're making these changes? Uh, Definition number two of lean and I got this from Larry Culp, who's now the head of, uh, runs GE, who used to run Danaher. Yeah. Lean is common sense, mm. rigorously and vigorously applied. Right. So this is not rocket science. You know, I, have, I think I have common sense. The idea here, let's just look for ways to do better. Um, okay. There's one thing that you said that, I got onto, and this is something that I struggled with when I was reading the book as well. And we keep talking about Kaizen continuous improvement, but we often keep hearing if ain't, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. So where do I draw the line between continuously trying to improve something? Or I'm just looking at something like it's not broken. It's functioning. Okay. Why do I bother fixing it? So I have a, a concept. I talk about incremental change and revolutionary change. And what Kaizen is good, good at is this incremental change. Mm. But what you need is you need some external shocks to the system for this dynamic change, this dynamic quality. And it turns out we could use some of these rules, some of these lean principles. Uh, you've heard perhaps of lean startup mm-hmm. or uh, you know, agile or design thinking. Yeah. Uh, I actually have a paper uh, uh, that compares agile design thinking and, and lean, the Darden working paper. Uh, that, that talks about these things. And I, and I need all three, depending where I am on a product life cycle. 
So if I look at things as a series of S curves, this lean and Kaizen is great for getting more out of an existing process. Mm -hmm. And I have to constantly evaluate, maybe I have to break it on purpose, or maybe I have to look what's next. Uh, I remember this guy named Vince Talbert. He asked a great question also. We used to talk about uh, order winning criteria. I think you may have read that in the book, cost, quality, delivery, flexibility. His question to me way back when is what's next? What comes after cost? What comes after quality? What comes after delivery? What comes after flexibility? What's the next thing you're going to have to compete on? Mm. So it's kind of the same thing here. The way I'm interpreting your question, I have to figure out what's next. Otherwise, I'm, uh, I'm the buggy whip manufacturer where I'm the most efficient buggy whip manufacturer, but there's no need for buggy whips anymore. Mm. The, the classic, if I were to draw a parallel, it's like the classic innovator's dilemma. Like mm-hmm. I keep making something and keep making it better and better and better, but nobody really wants it. That's exactly so right. It doesn't look broken, but it actually is because going back to point one, there is no customer for it. Mm-hmm. And then, well, innovator's dilemma also is somebody comes in non-incumbent who makes something that looks like it's not as good as me and I laugh at them. Yeah. But then they're on a trajectory that's going to surpass what I, I want through. Until Apple invented the iPhone, nobody knew I needed that. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So I, I think at this point, we've established what these lean or continuous improvement principles are um, and at what stage or what process they're most useful for in the professional world. Uh, I want to drill down another level into how they can help us actually execute on a day-to-day level. So let's call it a project management level. Uh, and a buzzword I have floating around in my head here is preventative maintenance. So, so if I could be a professor here, what I would call that is either a single piece flow, mm. or I'd call it uh, agile, or I'd call it risk reduction. The, the idea here being, if I'm going to send you off and do a project, I don't want you coming back six months later and yeah. having you, hey, this was wrong. You misunderstood it. We're going to have weekly check-ins mm-hmm. so that each week we see what, you, what you've done. Is it right or wrong? So uh, we don't have six months worth of rework. We only have one week worth of rework. So my example there is about two years ago, we renovated a house. Uh, we live in North downtown Charlottesville now. And I would go and check on the contractor every day. At the end of every day, I would go and see what they did. And the idea there was there was never more than one day's worth of rework. Mm, Yeah, got it, got it. So in this case, that single day, that single piece flow, it prevents errors from compounding. That's right. So it's uh, this idea, I don't have a week's worth of uh, things that are wrong. I only have a day's worth of work work Mm -hmm. that's wrong. Yeah, um, well, that's beautiful. I mean, whether that's me as a consultant, frequently checking in with my manager or what goes from instead of making five circuit boards on the factory floor with single piece flow, I catch it when I've only made one wrong. Eric, 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 you told me not to use factory examples. What's going on? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. But I guess my point is this principle is broad application. uh, And it reminded me actually of an axiom that I've heard that I think is particularly applicable in this century of multitasking. And that axiom is that single tasking is a superpower. Yeah. The, the idea there is I'd like to touch things just once. So uh, we talk mm-hmm. about over-processing and doing unnecessary work, e- extra work. So rather <laughs> than touch these pieces of paper 10 times, I touch it once, get rid of it, touch it once, get rid of it. Uh, it's the same thing with your email inbox. You know, mm-hmm. the, let me process that now as opposed to having to click on it uh, multiple times. So if we, if we go back to lean is the relentless pursuit of creating value through the strategic elimination of waste, that's, that's kind of the first level of lean implementation. But the second level, or maybe the more important level is actually the people part. So what Toyota says is we're not making cars, we're making people and the people make the cars. Mm-hmm. So uh, what I re- realized uh, as I was thinking, thinking back my 34 years here in anticipation of our, our talk today is no different than what you experience as MBA students. And by you, I mean all MBA students. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, when you start out the program, we start out with the leadership, organizational behavior, and you kind of roll your eyes. Why are we doing this? I came here to learn finance. I came here to learn accounting and marketing. <laughs> and then when you come back five or 10 years later, you say, you know, the most important things that I learned were communication and leadership. Yep. yep. And I was thinking about me and how I've developed over the, my 40, 35 years here at the Darden School. And when I came here, I was a stuff person. I taught stuff. Mm. And what I realized is I'm teaching people, I'm teaching you, but I'm also teaching people about people. So the, the idea here is uh, we sometimes talk about something called the knowing doing gap. Mm. What you know doesn't matter. What you do matters. And how do I do things? I do things through people, through motivating them, through encouraging them, through working with them, through developing them, through coaching them. Mm -hmm. So those are the skills that I need to develop in order to be a great lean practitioner. Because I can't go around, I can go into a factory and tell them, well, you ought to do this. Or I could watch you cook and dinner and say, uh, and you move your knives over there. And if you move the pots over here, things are yeah. better. What I have to learn is how to ask questions so that you can develop those answers for yourself. Because mm. if you figure it out by yourself, you figure it out on your own, that's going to that's gonna stick much, much more. So, yeah, this common sense is important. But what's even more common sense is getting the people that I'm working with to, to figure it out on their own. So this whole mm. idea of coaching become, becomes important. And coaching in a way is being a Socratic case method teacher. Mm. I may know the answer right away. And the hardest thing for me to do is to shut up. Yeah. And, you know, shut up, Elliot. The goal isn't to get the answer quickly. The goal is to get changes that stick. Mm. To get changes that stick, you may not be, quote, unquote, efficient at the beginning through that process. So that process itself is not efficient, but the result becomes efficient. So uh, my daughter who does this coaching has done that to me <laughs> she, uh, every now and then I'll ask her something and she just turns it right about right around and asks me, well, what do you think? And it's like, screw you. you know? <laughs> I say that you don't say that. No, but she's right. You know, how, how do we, how do I, how do I get the people to do, do what they want? So the, the chapter in the book that does that is actually also a decision tree chapter. Mm. I think it's called Zeke's tree and it's about my son. Mm. He was in fourth grade and he was having a problem with his homework. And rather than tell him what a solution was, I had him create a decision tree so that here he's 10 or 11, create this decision tree. And he figured it out on his own, which was like, this is so wonderful. And two days <laughs> later, he thanked me. Oh, geez, dad, thanks for that tree and help, help me do this. About a year later, similar problem. I said, well, let's make a tree. So I don't want to make a tree. Just tell me the answer. <laughs> so it, it didn't keep, but it, it felt so good that that two days later when he said to me, geez, dad, thanks for teaching me how to analyze that problem. Ah, see, see, we should have known that another decision tree example was coming. Um, but yeah, I'm with you. That's an interfamilial example, but it's easy to extrapolate out that and those lessons to a people management context. The other thing that where it's powerful is raising children. So if someday you have children that you're raising, you know, how do I get them to figure things out for themselves rather than tell them all the time? It becomes a very important. It's very hard to do. Because the last thing you want to do is see your kids fail. But what we talked about earlier was you learn from failure. So how do I balance letting them stub their toes, skin their knees to learn from it versus, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, if he doesn't know how much two plus two is in kindergarten, he's not going to get into Harvard. Mm. Well, given the people I know from Harvard, that would be a good thing. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're definitely keeping that last line in, Elliot, just, uh, just FYI there. But yeah, I, I hadn't thought of this in the familial sense necessarily, but it's the same in the business world. And that is, how do I invest in the short term, uh, in this case in people, to get a compounding result? Whether that's poor Zeke getting introduced to decision trees at too early of an age or, or spending that time up front with a new hire on your team. Um, I do know from experience, it's really difficult to do. Uh, most of us are hardwired for short-term results, uh, sending that next email instead of teaching or coaching. 
Um, but it's those teaching or coaching moments that, you know, are eventually going to drive long-term results and hopefully make your life easier uh, as a manager. Um, but I, I'd love to keep going on this, Elliot, because, you know, shame on me. I think ops and I still think of how do I produce the most widgets. But to your point, that's still a people-driven process. So you do have any other management-related thoughts? So I have another principle. We, we talk about robust people and robust process. Hmm. So in McDonald's, the process is robust. And by robust, we mean I get good output regardless of what the input is. Because my people aren't very robust. You know, who do I get at McDonald's? I get high school kids. I get retired people looking for supplemental income. Mm. People who really don't want to be there, who who may who can't handle problems. They want a set of rules. Mm. So I have the set of rules and here follow these rules and this process works. Don't mess with the process, just do it this way. So I need people to do that. If I'm hiring you to be a concierge at the Ritz Carlton. I need a robust person, person who can handle that variability because who knows what the next request is going to be. Right. Wow. That's beautiful. That's a gem. Yeah. <laughs> so if I'm uh, McKinsey, I, I want to hire robust people right. who can go out to a client and handle all kinds of different types of things. Mm. And then those McKinsey robust people work on the process so that I don't need robust people for a future process. So I could have non-robust people working on the process. So it iterates. One specific thing you said there, Elliot, and that was that the Ritz Carlton employee, the concierge needed to be able to handle variability in requests. And you know, that, that set off an alarm in my head because I do remember that when you inject variability into a system, uh, whether that's in the form of a wild request for the concierge or a massive spike in order volume in a factory, um, that variability is the boogeyman in terms of efficiency and effectiveness of that system. So what are your thoughts there? Uh, when I have variability in a system, there's three ways to handle that variability. Actually, it is in the book. I, I can build inventory so I can build stuff ahead of time mm -hmm. or I can have extra capacity. Or I think, yeah, lead time was the last one, which I don't have the inventory, nor do I have the capacity to immediately give you or process your order. Uh, so, hey, sorry, customer, you're going to have to wait. And, it, and it's funny, as I say that out loud, my, my top example that comes to mind about variability and then a subsequent disruption of the supply chains was, you know, the, the toilet paper and COVID crisis, right? Um, that's kind of the, the last option you want. So, so it bothers me that COVID, these COVID supply chain issues have often been blamed on lean because I, I get things just in time, mm. which means I don't have inventory. Right. What happened with COVID was with your toilet paper example, had plenty of capacity. People aren't defecating more. We're not using more toilet paper than we used to. Right. So why are we have a toilet paper shortage? Well, it turns out we're using different types of toilet paper. So when people are going to work in their office, they're using single ply in big rolls. Mm. And when you're home, you're using uh, quadruple ply Charmin's because your tushy is softer at home than it is in the office, right? So there was enough capacity for each one independently, but not, not when they shifted. So therefore, what happened, I didn't have inventory because I was just in time. And it doesn't pay to have inventory if that demand is going to be constant. But I had the shift in demand in the types of demand. So what happens to shortages and I have to wait. So, that, and so the answer to that could be inventory. Inventory is expensive. The real answer to that would be, could I build flexible capacity? So could I build it such that when demand switches from single ply to multiple ply that the machine can do, do either one. And that, that would be the way I would go for it. Got it. Um, so there's one thing that you talked about. You just said this might not be applicable in the workforce and that's something that I want to like push on a little bit because all of us are going to go into the workforce very soon. We're going to be managing people. 
Um, and specifically in instances where we're managing projects with a limited number of resources because the employees are fixed, uh, we have strict timelines to get towards. How do you apply these lean principles to basically manage your project effectively? I know there's Kanban, which is like, you know, ensuring that you have certain tasks in front of you so that you're like able to prioritize. And there's a whole bunch of softwares and tools out there. So we have Trello, you have Asana. These are like project management tools. But is that the simplest and the most efficient way at the workforce? Um, and how do you think the common sense should prevail for someone like us who's going into you know managing people very soon? So when I have a capacity problem, there, there's two things. So uh, capacity is resource available over units per or time per unit. So I either increase capacity, I hire more people or I work more, more quickly. Working more quickly doesn't necessarily mean working harder, it means working smarter. So what I would do is I would go in and look at, at your projects and your tasks and say, what work am I doing that doesn't need to be done? Mm. So where is there, where is Tim Wood in the system? Where is there so extra transport or waste. inventory or motion? Yeah. yeah. So let's get rid of, rid of the waste from there. Now, for a, if you're interested in project management, let's get Yael back because mm-hmm. Yael is our faculty project management expert, and she'll she'll talk talk about scheduling and things like that. But when in projects, we often talk about something called the critical path. So there's certain activities that if are they're delayed, they're going to delay the final delivery of the project or the mm-hmm. product. I want to make sure that those get done right away. So I'm not going to be working on something that's not critical because that's going to delay the critical. That critical path is essentially the bottleneck. It's the thing that's limiting me getting done. So we want to make sure that when there's a bottleneck, we want to be working on that because a minute delayed in the bottleneck will delay the project by a minute. A minute delayed in a, a slack activity, a non-bottleneck activity won't delay. What made you decide to write this book in the first place? So my, my problem as an educator is that people find the stuff I teach boring. Mm-hmm. They don't want to learn operations and they don't relate to printed circuit boards or uh, automobile manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Yet I think the principles are important because they apply in services as well as manufacturing. So I needed some examples that people could relate to. Mm-hmm. So working in the kitchen, working with your kids, uh, driving your car. Uh, having inventory of groceries are all things that people can relate to. These metaphors for the principles that are important. Book of puzzles and metaphors, basically. Yes. Awesome. And and I think, you know, like I said, I'm kind of a, uh, a nerd here looking at this stuff the way I look at it. And it's my way of sharing my nerdness, my geekness. Yeah, but it's, it's beautiful. I think I think the point is you read this book, you remember some of these stories and slowly these principles start percolating in your head and you start to build this mindset that you've obviously cultivated over, I'm sorry, like uh, God knows how many years, uh, but slowly like you, you can start to get into it. 67 years. <laughs> this is one line in the, in the book that I absolutely loved, which says, you can't do this on your own. It involves the engagement of your friends, family, and coworkers. So share the stories and share your own successes. You've obviously shared a lot of your successes through this podcast, but can you share, if there was one big success that came out of, you know, this entire intuitive mindset that you've built, what would that be? I mean, other, other than my wife's decision tree that we, we got married <laughs> on, that, that, that has to be the, the biggest success. That's, that's number one. <laughs> number one. Yeah. Number two is it, uh, it got me tenure at the Darden School because so, <laughs> of this work that, work that I've done. So it's been, a, been appreciated here. Uh, what is my biggest lean project? Uh, it's uh, all, <laughs> these are all silly ones. Uh, all the consulting I've done, and uh, I, I invented this game called Gazago where we play with Legos. It paid for four college tuitions for my children. Wow. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, that was a good thing. That, that's new for me. I, I wasn't told that you invented Gazago. I didn't know. Eric, did you know oh, that? No. No. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, I actually just wrote a technical note on this. So 
through this lean thinking and there's a process called A3 thinking. And I wrote a case about losing weight mm. with uh, using A3 thinking. And uh, recently using that type of problem solving technique, I lost uh, over 50 pounds. Wow. So the idea is uh, what's my current condition? What's my target condition? So what's the gap? Mm. What's the root cause for that gap? How do I attack that? And then the most important thing is how do I standardize and sustain so that I keep the weight off? Mm. So I actually use that as an example in classes now of the A3 thinking. So that, that's a great success story for me. And you can yeah. read about that actually in the Darden report, Ideas to Action. It does show the power of these ideas, personal, professional. Yeah. Their frameworks, A3 being one of them, frameworks to start intelligently attacking issues and problems. Awesome. That's a wrap on the long pole. That was the longest yes. pole we've had, but it was an incredible long pole. I would say that uh, there was just so much to learn. We, and I was thinking at the back of my mind, we basically covered first year core um, effectively, if not, you know, more than just that within that conversation. So I, I actually have another framework for you guys. Uh, Yay. <laughs> so this is, uh, this is actually the Darden MBA program. So I talk about the uh, eight C's or nine C's. Uh, everything starts with the customer. Mm-hmm. So what's the value proposition for the customer? Uh, is it uh, cost? Is it quality? Is it delivery? Is it customization? Yeah. So once I decide that, and that, that customer I call the marketing class, mm-hmm. I need operations. I need to deliver it. So this is capabilities and coordination. So some more C's there. How do I build uh, processes that deliver on those promises to the customer. And there the coordination is the supply chain. Next C is control. So I made those promises. Am I meeting the promises or not? Am I doing well or not? That's where accounting comes in. Mm. Then there's a competition. So it's not just me. I have to worry about what else is going on. So that's my strategy course. Then there's a C called context. So it's not just my organization. Uh, alone, but it's within the larger world, you know, so what are interest rates? Uh, what's the economy doing? What's mm. uh, where am I in the business cycle? So that's economics and finance. Mm. And then, uh, but wait a minute, there's more than that. We haven't talked about the people yet. Mm. So the people's the culture. So that's another C. So I have to oh, get the culture right. Yeah. And, and then uh, I have to worry about uh, communication, communication, both internally and externally. Mm. So that's where uh, culture was LO, communication is leadership communication, but there's also within that context and within communication or stakeholder theory, you have to worry about more yeah. than just me. And if I do that, I create value for these stakeholders. Mm-hmm. So that's the last C, which is creating value. Now it used to be, I created cash, <laughs> but uh, then you realize it, this, this works for government agencies for not-for-profits. So it's all about creating value. So I have a wheel that has all those C's around the customer that all wow. uh, all go to one of the core courses at the Darden School. Boom. Well, that's a beautiful way to end this segment. And uh, if any of the listeners made it this far, you just you just got the code cracked for you on the Darden curriculum. So so thanks for hanging in there. All right, Elliot, to wrap up this incredible podcast, we're going to turn to the last question that we always ask, and that is, what is that one song that is most memorable to you or that resonates with you the most? I have lots of songs here, so maybe you guys could help me. First one comes to mind is uh, Fly Eagles Fly, since I'm such a big Eagles fan. (laughs) Any Bruce Springsteen song, since I'm also a big Bruce Springsteen fan. But then there's two songs that I quote a lot. One is uh, by Janis Joplin, uh, Me and Bobby McGee. She has a line in there, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. And as uh, I went through my 34 years here at the Darden School, uh, each successive year, I had less and less to lose. So that gave me more freedom to say what I wanted to say. And and then uh, Joni Mitchell has a song called Big Yellow Taxi. And a line in that song goes, don't it always seem to go that you don't know what it's got till it's gone. Mm. They pave paradise and they put up a parking lot. So 
the idea there is we really don't appreciate all the blessings that we have. Mm. And uh, when, when I teach like the day before Thanksgiving, I try to send that message to all the students that you think that the world is crumbling upon crumbling down on you, that this is a horrible place that the going to hell in a handbasket, but look for the good things that you have. And uh, in a way that's, you don't know what you got till it's gone. So appreciate what you do have. Uh, so I, I think I'll, I'll end there on that one. That is beautiful. We are blessed to even have this discussion conversation <laughs> with you. And obviously, you know, to be here at Darden, to be able to do this with some of our best professors, favorite professors, this has been incredible. Thank you so much. I cannot imagine better answers to top that off, like towards the end and as we fade into, you know, the next episode. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I got another one for you. Ooh, you could good. either put, put, put in here or not, not put in here. So this isn't... Uh, this isn't to the song, but what you just said reminded me of this Harsha. Uh, there's another Talmudic saying that says, I learned a lot from my teachers. Mm. I learned more from my colleagues. I learned the most from my students. Mm. And if I was going to summarize the 34 years here at the Darden School, it would be all the things that I've learned, all the ways I've grown from you and your classmates and the alums that I've had the opportunity to teach. Uh, you come in, come in here with different points of view, different experiences, uh, particularly now that we have many more international students than, than we ever had before. Mm -hmm. And just, just to learn, learn from you from uh, different jobs, different industries, different countries, different cultures has just been, been wonderful for me. So it's been a great growth experience. Uh, uh, I need to figure out what I learned from, uh, from this podcast, but <laughs> I'm sure there was something. <laughs> That is definitely going in, yeah, and, and, and partially because it, it pats us on the back, so we appreciate that, yeah. students. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'll say this: like on behalf of everyone who's probably listening, and like I think all the students and the alumni, they probably are extremely grateful for being part of your class, and and it's essentially Darden because it is your framework that they ultimately use to make this program what it is. So. <laughs> and, and remember what I said before: it's uh, it's all about the people. Oh, yeah. And what does Darden school, school do really well? We get great people. So I'm going to give a shout out to Donna Clark and admissions and all her people there. We get great people and the faculty don't screw you up. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and yeah. you can't ask for more. No, it's, it's fun for you. me. Thanks. Enjoy, enjoy the book too. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks again. Okay. Bye-bye.